0: Christian University. Uh, But one of the other things, one of the industries there in Pineville, Louisiana, very fitting for the name, is a paper mill. Uh, Just outside of town, there's a paper mill. And if you've ever lived in a town, driven through a town, visited a town with a paper mill, you know there's a very distinct smell. That emanates from that production of paper. And so whenever you drive into Pineville, uh, it it like hits you in the face, okay? You can taste it in the air when you get out of your vehicle. It's like a punch in the mouth, okay? It's just so big, so pervasive, so everywhere that you can't ignore it, okay? You smell it everywhere that you go. Now, if you've, now the, the longer that you stay there, though, the more adjusted you become to that smell. And so it's not quite as pungent, the odor isn't, whenever you walk out the third, fourth, fifth, sixth week that you've been living on campus there in the dormitories. And before long, by the end of the semester, you barely smell the smell at all anymore. But whenever I would drive home and for, the, for the summer or for uh, winter break and then come back, it was like, boom, right there in the face again. Okay, Because it's just so, so big everywhere in town. I, if you've ever lived in a town like that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And you almost lose a sense of the awareness of that smell the longer that you live around it until someone else drives into town to meet you and they go, man, what is that smell? You're like, what smell? Right? Because you've just grown accustomed to it over the course of time. And this morning in the passage that we're looking at today, particularly verses 19 and 20 of Colossians chapter 1, there are some truths that are there that are so big, They're so pervasive. They're so everywhere in the Bible that at times we can lose our sense of how glorious they really are. They become diminished to some degree. And for many Christians, I fear that we hardly notice them any longer. And it's only when God is gracious oftentimes to save someone... And they come into the church like a guest coming into town and they have that fresh sense of that smell in their nostrils of these big truths that have been so pervasive in the church. They become overwhelmed by them and then we get a whiff of their freshness once again when we come into contact with someone who's just smelled it for the first time, right? And as we prepare to receive communion this morning, the Lord's table, I want to pass these big truths under our noses so that maybe they serve like smelling salts this morning to wake us up, awaken us to the bigness of God and to the glory of God. And the two big, beautiful truths in this passage in verses 19 to 20 are this, the identity of Jesus and the mission of Jesus and they're everywhere in the Bible, pervasive, big. And we grow, have grown accustomed to them. But I want to wave them under our noses once more as we come to the Lord's table this morning. First, the identity of Jesus. In verse 19, Paul tells us that Jesus is the fullness of God in flesh. That he's the fullness of God in flesh If you go back into verse 15, at the very outset of the text that I read this morning, we read that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The invisible God made visible in a human being. And then in verse 19, Paul says, In him, in Christ, in Jesus, all the fullness, not some of the fullness, all the fullness of God was pleased, delighted, happy to dwell, to live in him. Now, when we read passages like this, our mind, if we've been in the church any time at all, often goes immediately to the doctrine of the Trinity, right? Of the the triuneness of God, the three-in-oneness of God. And I'm afraid that for many people, whenever they think of the triunity of God or the Trinity, they often think of the reality of God being three persons in one essence as if it's a pie, okay? And like a pie... Right, you can pick your favorite peach or apple or cherry or pumpkin or key lime. I could go on and on here. Right, but pick your favorite pie, and they think of God as being like that pie. And whenever you go to serve a pie, you right, you slice it. Okay, and you can create as many slices as you have people to serve, but they think of the God pie being divided into three slices, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's kind of the concept that many people are operating with. And so whenever you get a slice of the pie, you don't get the whole pie, unless it's really late at night and no one else is watching, right? Then you eat as much as you want. No judgment. But you don't get the whole pie, you get a slice of the pie. And so many people think of God that way. The Father's, right, he's a slice. The Son, he's a slice. The Spirit, he's a slice. That's not at all the way that Paul describes the triuneness of God even here in this passage. What he says here really pulls that whole idea apart and makes it crumble on its foundations. Because Paul says that the fullness of All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. Now what that doesn't mean is that the Father is the Son or that the Son is the Spirit or that the Spirit is the Father. He's not saying any of those things. They are distinct persons. But they share a divine essence. In other words, everything that makes God God is in the Father, is in the Son, and is in the Spirit. They all embody those attributes together. They're relational and they submit themselves to one another in love and obedience, functionally, but foundationally they are all equally God. They delight to glory in one another as each is fully God, sharing in that divine essence. So what Paul says here in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, and is, is this, that everything that makes God who God is, is present in Jesus Christ. The love of God, the justice of God, the mercy of God, the truth of God, the holiness of God, the grace of God. The eternality of God, the compassion of God, the tenderness of God, the power of God, the satiety of God, right? The self-existent nature of God needs no one else other than himself. All the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ. Because within the triune God, there is nothing that one has that another does not, Right. If, so if nothing was left out of the eternal Son of God made flesh, but the fullness dwelled in Him, then listen, here's what that means. You're not seeing one aspect of God in Jesus. You're not seeing one part of God or one piece of God in Jesus. You're seeing all the fullness of God come to dwell in flesh. And one of the things this means for you, you're like, man, I've heard this all of my life. Well, let me tell you something. Let's get real, real down to earth here. One of the things this means is this, is that you don't have to grope for God in the dark, blindly trying to find him. Earlier this week, Karen and I were celebrating our 22nd anniversary, and so we took a little trip down to the Texas Hill Country, okay? Beautiful area. As we drove back into Dallas, I said, mm, we gotta move, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> So we were down in the hill country, and we stayed in a, uh, this little town called Comfort, Texas. It's about 20 minutes south of Fredericksburg. And in Comfort, Texas, there is a bed and breakfast called the Haven River Inn. It's operated it' a blessing for us to find it, because it's operated by some individuals who they, run, they, they rent the rooms out, they do weddings and all kinds of things there. But when they have availability, they offer it for free to pastors and missionaries and ministry work, full-time ministry workers. And so my wife Wife, who is very frugal, right? She's doing research in all these places we can go, and she found this one, and so we went there, right? And it was an amazing stay. It's right on the Guadalupe River, okay? It's about maybe 200 yards down to the river. And so we walked down the river the first night that we got there. Uh, I had to bring a fishing rod with me. Uh, She understands that. We've been married for 22 years, right? And so we're walking along the Guadalupe. We're staying there, eating breakfast in the morning, exploring the area. But it's in a very old house, okay? And a very large house, as you can imagine, for a bed and breakfast, But in an old house, way out in the middle of nowhere, with no city lights around, whenever you turn the lights off in the room at night, it gets like dark, dark, okay? Like an extra level of dark, and so we, tur- we got ready for bed, turned the lights off, crawled under the covers, fell asleep. In the middle of the night, I had to get up to go to the restroom. If you're over 40, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You can commiserate, okay? So I get up in the middle of the night to go to the restroom, and I can't see my hand in front of so I'm, here's what I'm doing. Is I'm trying to go to the restroom. like I'm feeling for the bed here, right? Trying to make sure I don't stub my toe or hit my knee. like I come to the end of the bed and I'm like groping for the walls, fumbling around. And I'm like walking like this through the room to make my way to the bathroom. You laugh because some of you have been there before. You know exactly what I'm talking about, okay? And so I was just fumbling around in the dark trying to find my way. And listen, in our natural state, everyone is fumbling around in the dark, groping for God, searching for something, some kind of significance, some kind of purpose, some kind of order or design for their life. That's the natural state of every human being. And yet what Paul says here is that in Jesus Christ, God has turned on every light in the house. And you're able to clearly see who he is. He makes the invisible God visible so you don't need to look for God any further than in Jesus Christ. You don't have to grasp at theories about God, about his nature, or about his character, because he's revealed himself. And if that's true, then it means you and I can stop worrying and start worshiping. We can stop searching and begin submitting our lives unto him. We don't have to fumble around any longer, but now we can begin to put our feet on the path of discipleship and follow him as he leads and restores and transforms our lives. There is nothing left to look for, church. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. Now imagine what this means for a church that's trying to weather the storm of false teaching. And false teachers in their midst. People who are coming in saying things like, Yeah, Jesus is great, but you also need this special knowledge. Yeah, Jesus is great, but you also need this special experiences. Yeah, Jesus is great, but you also need some special techniques. right? You need some kind of information that we are privy to, have access to, and can provide to you. And in that context, Paul says, Jesus is the true and only image of the invisible God. And it was God's good pleasure... God delighted to have all of the attributes that make God God in the, of the eternal son, the second person of the triune God, dwell in flesh in Jesus Christ. So you don't need any other special knowledge. You don't need any other special revelation. You don't need any other special experiences. You don't need any other special techniques. You just need Jesus. Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself would say in John 14, whenever Philip asks him this question, it's a phenomenal question, he says, Jesus, would you show us the Father? And Jesus' response is this, I have been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. All the fullness of God pleased to dwell. Jesus is the fullness of God in flesh. And he came in the flesh on a mission for a reason, for a purpose. And that's the second big, beautiful truth that I want us to see. In verse 20, Paul tells us that it was Jesus came to make peace. He came to make peace. Look, verse 20 starts with a conjunction. If you're a little rusty on your English grammar, here's what a conjunction is, all right? It's a connecting word. It's a connecting word. It's the word and. Now when you see that word and, right, It shows up hundreds of times across any book that you read in the Bible. Right? But in the in verse 20, it's the very first word in verse 20. So in verse 19, Paul says, Jesus is the all the fullness of God in human flesh. And then there's a logical connection that he makes with what follows in verse 20. When he says, and, so the question is then, what is this logical connection between these two verses, these two ideas? And I believe the logical connection is this, the fullness of God in flesh to make peace and reconcile us to the Father. That's the logical connection. So Jesus is in all the fullness of God in human flesh. To reconcile our relationship to God and make peace where there was enmity, hostility, and war. Because for Jesus to, for there to to be a need for peace to be made, then there must have been war. There must have been hostility. There must have been enmity. So to say that Jesus is making peace assumes that we are not born in a position of spiritual neutrality. Okay? We're not like spiritual Switzerland. It's just hanging out there with everybody's money in the bank because they won't take anybody's side. Okay, that's not what we are spiritually, but we're born with spiritual hostility, not just an indifference towards God, but a hatred towards Him, running from Him. See, by nature, we believe that the commands of God are burdensome, and we want to cast them off any restraints Right? We, know we don't want to submit ourselves to them. By nature, we despise anyone who tells us what we can and cannot do. Case study, a child in your home, right? They don't want anyone telling them no. They don't want anyone telling them, giving them restrictions or boundaries. They push against those many times. By nature, that's who we are. We don't want anyone saying what is good for us and what is bad for us. We want to determine that for ourselves, right? Or what we were designed for and what goes against our design and purpose. We want to make those decisions on our own. And this puts us in a position of fighting against God's good design and His purposes for our lives so that we can live out our deepest desires, right? That's the age in which we live. It's been the condition of the human heart from the Garden. Right, wanting to live out our deepest desires—that's the essence of sin. Rather than submitting those desires to the word, ways, and will of God, and as a result, then we're separated from God, estranged from Him, or cut off. In fact, that's why Paul uses the word "reconcile" in verse twenty. It's this hostility towards God that separates us from Him. Our sin. And the word reconcile means literally to bring two people or parties back together following a separation or a division or disruption in their relationship and to restore them to the former state of intimacy, closeness, or union they once shared. See, reconciliation is a step beyond forgiveness. You can forgive someone and not be fully restored to the level of intimacy that you had with them before. But reconciliation goes a step beyond that. To say, I don't, not only do I want to release you from the debt that you owe me, but I also want to enjoy relationship with you once again, of closeness, intimacy, and union. See, when a husband and wife or a parent and child reconcile, it means that one of them has sinned against, wounded, or wronged the other. And that caused a separation, this disruption in their relationship, and now they've been restored to their former union. Forgiveness has been offered, and they've moved back into building trust and intimacy once more that's reconciliation now in the beginning our in the garden our first parents enjoyed absolute intimacy with God union with God the nearness of God as he came to fellowship with them in the garden and yet their willful decision to reject what God had said the one boundary that God had established he had drawn around the tree of the knowledge of good and evil whenever their desires to run and rule their own lives were awakened within them, what they do? They violated the one boundary that God had established. And, and, and so doing, they not only violated, they not only broke the rule, but they betrayed the relationship of trust. And as a result, there was this severing, this separation from God. Because God and his holiness could not fill up with man in his sinfulness. And the war, war, that sounds real country, all right? The war started in a garden, okay? So for all of you who think if we could just move out to the country somewhere in this very rural environment then, and make a commune for ourselves, that we'd all be at peace, you are deceiving yourselves because the war started in a garden, And it has spread to every urban, suburban, and rural context in every generation. As we fight against God, and we need someone to make peace, put an end to the hostility, the enmity, or the war. And the truth is, when it comes to making peace, peace can either be made by you, or it can be made for you. It can be made by you or for you, but listen, it's only Christianity that step that, that holds out this beautiful offer of peace being made for you. It's only Christianity. As Dwight L. Moody once said, he said, a great many people are trying to make peace, but that has already been done. God has not left it for us to do. All that we have to do is enter into it. And the way that God has done what Moody says he has done, made peace, is by the shedding of Jesus' blood. The fullness of God in flesh to make peace through the offering of himself by shedding his blood on the cross to reconcile the relationship between God and man. In Isaiah 53, we read a prophecy written hundreds of years before Jesus is born that speaks of the way he would make peace for us. Listen to what Isaiah writes. He says, Surely he has borne our griefs And carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement. That brought us peace. And with his wounds. We are healed. We read texts like that. And we may ask ourselves the question. But why? Why did God have to make peace this way? And listen, I want to tell you something. The answer to that question is found in two places. First, in human intuition, but also in divine revelation. In human intuition, listen, this makes sense on a natural level, and you see it in human law. Listen, whenever someone commits a crime against another individual, you know, it's what they're doing, whenever they steal from them, whenever they abuse them, whenever they hurt them in some way, shape, or form, what they are doing is treating them as less than human, as, as if they had less dignity and worth than a human being whenever they violate someone in that way. And whenever that takes place within the legal systems of nearly every nation that has ever existed, right, there are punitive consequences that come. There's punishment that happens, Because we we, we see that whenever someone violates a law against another individual, now there is a debt that is owed. This proverbial debt that must be paid. And in fact, whenever we incarcerate someone in our nation, whenever we imprison them, right, because they have committed some kind of crime, we speak of it as them paying their what? Debt to society, Right? Because we feel that deep down somewhere that justice must be served. There is a debt that is owed and there is a debt that must be paid if, if there is to be some sort of restoration of that person and the restoration of society as a whole. Someone must pay the debt. This is true at a human level. It's that We intuit it naturally. And if that's the case, then how much more so is that true at a divine level? And listen, every other worldview, every other false understanding of the way the world works, every other world religion or system of thought is essentially saying the same thing. That if you do enough, if you try hard enough, if you gain enough knowledge, have enough experiences, if you do enough good deeds, right? If you do enough and you can make peace yourself By paying your debt, you can save yourself. And yet, some of you will remember this. I remember it as a child. Back in 1985, there was a live aid tour, okay, of musicians collectively that all got together. All these famous musicians from all genres of music got together and they traveled around and put on concerts all across the nation. And it became a global phenomenon. Right, I remember Stevie Wonder sitting at the piano playing along, and you had Bob Dylan up there as well playing guitar and singing. And listen, I, I, the, the song that came out of that, right? You, some of you remember this song. Some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I was born like 10 years ago, okay? I get it. I get it. But the song that was made famous out of that was We Are the World, And if you remember the lyrics of that song, they went this way. We are the world. We are the children. We are the ones who make a brighter day, so let's start giving. There's a choice we're making. We're saving our own lives. It's true, we'll make a better day. Just you and me. So in other words, the theme of that song was if we could all just act together, hold hands, breathe and sing in unison, then we collectively heal the world can make peace, restore wholeness and order in society. And following that that Live Aid tour, Bob Dylan was interviewed by a reporter for Rolling Stone magazine. And in the interview, he expressed a degree of discomfort with that song and his involvement with that song. And the reporter asked him why, and his answer was very succinct. He said these words, humanity cannot save itself. Listen, that has been the testimony of history. Okay? I, I believe this book teaches that, but you don't need this book to see that. As you look back through the annals of history, and every civilization has collapsed because of decay, of decline, every single one. Right? We cannot save ourselves So we intuit this at a human level. We see it throughout history. There's a debt that must be paid whenever a law is broken. And we cannot make peace ourselves. But you also see it in divine revelation. Listen, if you want a little light reading this afternoon, go home and read the book of Leviticus. Okay? Listen, in there you'll find all sorts of laws and statutes. And in particularly, in the first 16 chapters, you'll find all sorts of cleanliness laws. Laws of ceremonial ritual cleansing and cleanliness. Laws that were mandated for entering the presence of God, particularly by the high priest whenever he would go in on the day of atonement. Right? And so there were all these the types of garments that he wore. The, the cleanliness of those garments, not a spark, not a speck, not a hint of dust or dirt or excrement or anything, blood, anything on the, on, the, on the garments. They must be pure and white. They even couldn't be made of multiple types of fabric, of one type of fabric. You couldn't mix things up, Right? And then he had to wash himself before he put those garments on. His body had to be cleansed from head to toe. Couldn't have any sores on him. He couldn't be bleeding anywhere. He couldn't have any any blemishes. His garments couldn't have any blemishes. But there were also laws about the types of sacrifices that he took. They couldn't have any blemishes either. Right. So he had to take two goats, both of them unblemished. And on one of the goats, he would lay his hands and he would confess the sins of the people. And as he confessed the sins of the people, God establishes this picture, this transference of this the one who is clean, then absorbing the uncleanness of the people, the sins of the people. Then that goat's led out into the wilderness to take their sins away. Then another goat, which was spotless and pure and blemishless as well, was slain. And his blood was taken in by the high priest in, after he took a shower. And after he put on the white clothes into the Holy of Holies, sprinkled upon the mercy seat. While one goat took the sins of the people away, the other blood of the other goat turned away the wrath and anger of God against the sins of his people. And so in the Old Testament there, you see this picture Of those who, the ones who are clean becoming unclean so that those who are unclean could be clean. You have that picture that's laid out for us there. Because the people had sinned against God. They incurred a debt, so a debt must be paid. And it must be paid. And so every year on an annual basis... Those who were unclean confessed their sins upon the animal that was clean so that the cleanliness of the one that was clean could be transferred to those who were unclean. But then when you fast forward to the New Testament, what you're going to see is that picture becomes reality. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, we see that these annual sacrifices, were told by the author of Hebrews, were but a reminder of their sins. And it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so another sacrifice was needed. Another sacrifice was needed. Peace still needed to be made if reconciliation between us and God was going to be a reality. That's why in Colossians 1.20, Paul doesn't say Jesus pronounced peace, He said, "All's forgiven, right? Just go about your lives, and we'll all live in this happiness together. That's not what he says. He didn't pronounce peace, but he made peace. He was making peace. In other words, he did something to bring about the condition of peace for God's people. And what was it that he did to make peace? He who was clean was made unclean so that we who are unclean could be clean in him. The exact picture that he establishes in Leviticus becomes reality at the cross. He was making peace by the blood of his cross to reconcile us to God. So that that separation, that estrangement, that division could be healed because the war is over. Peace has been made because the debt was paid. And it was paid by Jesus. That's the second big, beautiful truth. The mission of God. So, in verses 19 and 20, you see the fullness of God in flesh to make peace by, rec- by the blood of his cross reconciling us to God. Those are like smelling salts, church. <laughs> to wake, awaken us. To the beautiful reality of what God has done in Jesus Christ. So he's saying to the Colossians, you don't need to look anywhere else for fullness, it's right. Hey, this is Pastor Shannon, and I want to thank you for tuning in today. I trust that the Lord has spoken to you through His Word, and if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I invite you to trust Him today. If you have questions about what that means, reach out to us through our website, RedeemerRC.com, and one of our pastors will be in touch. In addition, if you would like to partner with Redeemer in her mission to share, shape, and send, you can support our ministry by visiting RedeemerRC.com forward slash give. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your active participation in the life of a local church. But tune in next week as we continue to lift high the name of Jesus through every paragraph, passage, and page of the Bible.